to Mark chapter 3. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, we continue with our study of the 12 disciples. We are reminded once again, as we read in verse 13 of Mark chapter 3, that Jesus went up on the mountain. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that there he prayed all night. Afterwards, he summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and we studied Simon a few weeks ago, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, whom we studied a few weeks ago, and in verse 18, and Andrew, whom we have studied, and Philip, who we spoke about last week, And now this week in verse 18, Bartholomew, and also, skipping Matthew for a while, Thomas. Bartholomew and Thomas. Lord, this morning as we speak about your disciples, we don't want to know so much about some men. We want to know rather the way that a holy God interacted with these fallen men. And the way that you redeemed them for your purposes. And used them for your glory. We want to have our faith stirred up this morning. We want to have our faith strengthened that we might be established in who you are, that we might stand firm against the schemes of the enemy and the wickedness of the world and that we might stand for your righteousness in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trials and in tribulations. We want to have our faith strengthened this morning that we might trust you and proclaim you all the while so you come and speak to us. I submit my heart and my mind and my lips to you, Holy Spirit, and ask that every word that comes from these lips would be directly from you. We want to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we talk about Bartholomew and Thomas. Bartholomew is also known as Nathaniel. In all the lists of the 12 disciples, he's called Bartholomew, but in the Gospel of John, he's called Nathaniel. Bartholomew was his surname. It's Aramaic for son of Ptolemy. Ptolemy. Bar meaning son in Aramaic. Ptolemy being some guy, presumably. So Bartholomew, the son of Ptolemy, his other name being Nathaniel. Just as Jesus one time said to um, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, Barjona meaning son of John in Aramaic. So this was a normal thing. Thaddeus, we'll find out later on if we study him, had three names. Matthew was also called Levi. So don't be confused, but Bartholomew is Nathaniel. And this morning we will refer to him from here on out as Nathaniel. And you'll recognize that now as you read some stuff in the book of John about him. Thomas had another name. His other name that Jesus called him by was Didymus, which means twin. Presumably he was a twin, had a twin brother, maybe a sister, I don't know. But we also know him as Doubting Thomas, don't we? But this morning we will simply refer to him as Thomas, and rightly so. We have a little information about Nathaniel and Thomas, not much. Nathaniel, outside of the lists of the apostles, is only mentioned two times in the whole New Testament. Once in John chapter 1 and once in John chapter 21. Thomas gets just a little more press. All of it in the book of John. We have three main incidents, John 11, John 14, and John 20, that we'll look at concerning Thomas this morning. So we don't know too much from Scripture concerning these guys, but we do know a little bit from church history. And what we know from church history is that these men were faithful with the Great Commission. They may not have gotten a lot of press in the Gospels or the Epistles or the Book of Acts, but history tells us they were faithful with the commission. Early church records suggest that Nathaniel ministered in Persia and in India and that he took the Gospel as far as Armenia. Thomas, it is believed, took the Gospel initially to India and we're told that today in southern India there are today existing churches whose roots can be traced back to the early church, the first century church, and the claims are that Thomas founded those churches. In fact, in Madras, India, there's a little airport, and just to the side of the airport is a hill, and on the top of that hill, it is believed that Thomas, the apostle, is buried there. So Thomas 
and Bartholomew, Nathaniel, both were faithful to the Great Commission. They gave their lives for the gospel. They, as the other disciples, were martyred for their belief in Jesus Christ. The best historical accounts we have concerning Nathaniel suggest that he was tied in a bag and thrown into the sea to drown as a martyr for his faith. And we are told concerning Thomas that he was run through with a spear and put to death for his faith. So we glean a little bit from church history and tradition. But here's what we glean from Scripture this morning concerning these men. We know concerning Nathaniel and concerning Thomas that they both had great faith. Thomas was a man of tremendous faith. What? Wait a minute. We call him Doubting Thomas. Well, I think that he got a bum rap. Open up your Bibles now or move to John chapter 11. So I'll show you what I mean. John chapter 11 We have a familiar story before us in John chapter 11. It is the story of Lazarus and his falling ill and his subsequent death. You know that Jesus was very close to Martha and Mary, who were sisters, and they had a brother named Lazarus. And we frequently see Jesus and the disciples hanging out at their home throughout the gospel accounts. He had a wonderful relationship with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. At this moment in uh, chapter 11 of John, Lazarus has fallen sick, and Martha and Mary send word to Jesus as he's ministering in another town with the disciples, and they simply send a note that says, the one whom you love is sick, and they just assume that he would know that it was Lazarus, of course he was omniscient, he knew it was Lazarus, and they assumed secondly that immediately upon hearing that he was deathly ill, that Jesus would leave the work in the other town, and he would come back to minister to Lazarus. But we are told an interesting thing in verse 5 of chapter 11. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Huh? Wait a minute. He loved Martha and Mary and he loved Lazarus. And so now that Lazarus is sick, he doesn't go to them. Jesus, wouldn't it make sense to you that if Lazarus is sick and you love him, that you would immediately go to heal him? No. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are higher than ours. He has wisdom. We do not. God in his wisdom stayed two more days where he was. Then verse 7. Then after this, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go there again? We know that in the previous chapter, in John chapter 10, that Jesus had claimed to be God in the flesh. The Jews came to him in John 10, verse 24. And they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And so Jesus told him plainly in verse 25 of John 10. I told you, and you didn't believe me. The works that I do, I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. But you don't believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now what did he mean by that? Liberal theologians today and goon balls of all sorts try to say he meant all kinds of things other than what he meant he meant that he was god in the flesh that he and the father were one this idea of the trinity we know that to be true by what follows in verse 31 the jews took up stones again to stone him why jesus answered them i showed you many good works from the father of which of these are you stoning me the jews answered and said for good work we do not stone you 
but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Jews then were smarter than the liberal theologians now. They knew exactly what Jesus meant, that he said, I and the Father are one. I am God incarnate, God in the flesh. And to them, they didn't believe it, so it was blasphemy, so they sought to kill him. We're told in verse 39 of John 10, Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So he's gone to another region now, and he's ministering. And the Jews in the region of um, where, uh, Bethany, where Martha and Mary and Lazarus were, are seeking to kill him. And Jesus now is going back to that region as Lazarus is sick. And his disciples said, wait a minute. They were just now seeking to kill you. They accused you of blasphemy. They picked up stones. Jesus, they want to murder you back there. You're going to go back there. The implication being, if they're going to kill you, they're probably going to want to kill us too because we've been with you the whole time. Jesus, are you sure you want to go back? Because we don't really want to go back. And Jesus said, oh, we're going back. Look how they tried to get out of it. Verse 11. Verse 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. The disciples therefore said, Lord, we don't have to go back. If he's only sleeping, he'll be okay. Verse 13, Now Jesus was speaking of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Hello, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Now, let us go to him. We see that the disciples had fear in their heart and a little bit of a lack of faith concerning exactly who Jesus was because Jesus said, I tarried here for a little while longer that now Lazarus can be dead. I waited for the guy to die so that I can go back and raise him from the dead that you may believe. The disciples were afraid and there was a little bit of a lack of faith. But look who steps up to the plate. Look who has great faith and a lack of fear. Verse 16, Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let's go with him, that we may die with him. Doubting Thomas? Where do you get that? Doubting nothing. Peter didn't say, oh, let's go with him, guys. We'll die with Jesus. We don't sweat. Come on, let's go. Peter didn't say it. Andrew didn't say it. The sons of thunder didn't say it. It was Thomas who said, let's go with him, and we'll die with him. Thomas was the first of the disciples who was willing to die with and for Jesus Christ. Thomas was a great man of faith. And he was a man who sought to inspire faith in others. Do you see his gift of exhortation right there? He's stirring the other ones up. He says to them. He doesn't say as Peter said, Oh Lord, I'm willing to go to death with you. He says to the others, Come on guys. Buck up. Come on, get some guts, man. Let's go. I mean, this is the Lord we're talking about. Let's go with him. Let's stick by him. Even if it means death, let's go. Thomas had an amazing faith. He clearly believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, even though others were still unsure. And Thomas believed, even until the day of his death, when he was run through with a spear. But there did come a moment when Thomas had a crisis of faith. Not necessarily a lack of faith, but a crisis of faith. One of those moments in life that God makes sure we all have where things don't make sense, where ends don't meet, where we just can't figure it out, where it doesn't seem like this is our life, this isn't the way it ought to be. I didn't think it would go down this way. A crisis in faith. God, what is going on? I don't understand. I'm afraid. I don't see. I don't have clarity. A crisis in faith. Thomas had one of these in John chapter 14. Turn there now. John chapter 14. By the time we get to 14, it's been a rather dramatic night. It is the Last Supper. 
Jesus is gathered in the upper room where we will go when we go as a church to Israel on August 17th. He's gathered there in the upper room with his disciples. And at the beginning of the supper, you know from John chapter 13 that Jesus girded up his loins and he knelt down and he washed the feet of the disciples. And he said, what I've done for you, I've done as an example. There's only two times in the entirety of the New Testament that we are told that we have a direct example from Jesus Christ. One in John chapter 13, where we're given the example of servanthood and washing the feet of others. And one in the book of 1 Peter, where we are told that he is our example of suffering. And that we are to be willing to follow Jesus in these examples, servanthood and suffering. Jesus knelt down. He washed the feet of his disciples. And then he says in verse 21 of John chapter 13, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit and testified saying, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. These guys have been together for three years. They've been walking with Jesus. They've seen all the stuff that he's done. They've developed a deep camaraderie, though they bickered at times and debated as to who was the greatest, as we've spoken of. There was still yet a camaraderie amongst them. And yet Jesus says now, one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another in verse 22 at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Come on, we're a tight-knit group of 12. Who could possibly be planning to betray the Lord tonight? During the Passover meal, oy vey, verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We assume that to be John. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said, Hey John, tell us who it is, whom he's speaking of. And then John, leaning back thus on the breast of Jesus, said to him, Hey Lord, just let me and Pete know. Who's the betrayer? Verse 26, Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Can you imagine that moment of anxiety? Jesus said, I'll tell you who's going to betray me tonight. I'm going to take this piece of bread. I'm going to dip it. And whoever I hand it to is the one. I imagine that every disciple at that moment just had their heart begin to pound out of their chest. Because I think every one of them knew that they could have been the betrayer. I think that each one of us is just this close to being able to betray Jesus Christ. But by God's grace, there go I, the way of Judas Iscariot. But by God's grace. Can you imagine that moment of tension as Jesus dips the morsel. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Listen to this, verse 27. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do it quickly. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. What a heavy night this has been. Jesus knelt down and washed the feet of the disciples. He's going to institute communion on this night. He dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas. Satan entered Judas, and Judas went out to betray Jesus. And then Simon said, Lord, we want to be with you. Wherever you're going, I will go with you. I'm willing to lay down my life. And Jesus, in front of everyone, said, Peter, you will deny me three times this night. Can you imagine the fear in the heart of the disciples right now? Judas is gone. He's out. He's a betrayer. And Simon... Peter, the absolute leader, was just told by Jesus that he would deny him three times. Jesus had to say to them in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Because by now they were freaking out. Peter and Judas were in big trouble. 
Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And we have in the New Testament the first mention of the rapture of the church. And Jesus said here, if I go. And did he go? He went. How did he go? Literally, just like he said. He said, I will return for you and receive you unto myself. How will he return? Literally, just like he said. And then he said in verse 4, And you know the way where I'm going. It's almost funny. And you know where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Here is a moment, a crisis of faith in the life of Thomas. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. I know this night is dramatic. I have told you that this is a night that I will be betrayed, that I will be condemned, that I will be beat, that I will be mocked, that I will be spit upon, that I will have my beard ripped from my face, that I will have my back ripped open, that I will have a crown of thorn pressed into my skulls. It will be on this morning when I will be nailed to the cross and there I will die. And Judas is a betrayer. And Simon Peter is a denier. But let not your hearts be troubled. I'm leaving. What do you mean let not our hearts be troubled? What do you mean you're leaving? Don't leave us, man. They want to kill you. They want to kill us. This is scary. We don't understand. Don't leave, Jesus, please. You know where I'm going. I don't know where you're going, Thomas says. I don't understand, Lord. This isn't how I thought it would happen. You're supposed to be the conquering king, the Messiah. As soon as we hooked up with you, everything is supposed to be okay now. You're supposed to be able to handle everything. You're supposed to be able to handle the religious authorities and the Romans and all those who would come against us. And you're supposed to establish the kingdom now. And you're supposed to be able to take care of us. What do you mean that you're leaving? I don't understand. My heart is troubled. Don't tell me not to be troubled. In my heart, I'm afraid. Can anybody relate to this crisis of faith? He's not doubting. It's just a crisis of faith. He just doesn't see the outcome. He just doesn't understand. He doesn't have clarity. It's not working out the way he thought his life ought to work out. And so, how do we deal with a crisis of faith? John chapter 20. Turn there. John chapter 20, verse 19. When therefore it was evening... On that day, what day is this? It's the day of the resurrection. It's a wonderful day. It's Easter. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, Peace be with you. Remember when I told you not to let your hearts be troubled? It was in the same place. We were gathered in the same place. And now I've come again. And now I'm risen. And I say, peace be with you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not there with them when Jesus came. What a bummer, huh? Missed out. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, Oh, man, Thomas, where were you, man? You blew it. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails, 
and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now here's where we get the name Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. He said, I don't believe it unless I see it. But if we're going to call Thomas a doubter, we've got to call the other 11 doubters as well. Because Mark chapter 10 tells us very clearly, is it Mark chapter 16? Somewhere in the book of Mark, we're told very clearly that on the day of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene, it's Mark chapter 16, came to the disciples after having gone to the tomb and seen that it was empty, that he was risen, came to the disciples and said, he is risen. And they said, we don't believe it. They didn't believe it until Jesus appeared in the room with them and showed them the wounds in his hands and the wound in their side. And then they rejoiced and said, oh, we've seen the Lord. So if it was doubting Thomas, it was doubting Peter. It was doubting Thomas, it was doubting James, it was doubting John, it was doubting Thaddeus, it was doubting Matthew, it was doubting all the other ones. They were all in the same boat. None of them believed until they saw, now listen to me, none of them believed until they saw the wounds for themselves. Now, verse 26, and after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach Hear your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. When did the crisis of faith for Thomas end? It wasn't until he reached his hand into the wounds. It wasn't until he placed the finger into the flesh that was broken for him. Jesus said, reach here your finger. Reach here your hand. God will make sure that you and I experience crises of faith. We will all come to a point in our lives where it doesn't make sense. It is not working out. I don't understand. I'm afraid. I'm confused. I'm concerned. I'm angry. I don't get it. A crisis of faith. It is at that moment where we are allowed to reach our hands into the wound on the side of Jesus Christ. It's at that moment where we are allowed to put our fingers into the wounds on his hands. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. And he said, this cup is a cup of a new covenant. It is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. And so in anticipation of his ascension unto heaven. He instituted for you and I communion. When we can come to the bread, which is symbolic of, which is a picture of his body broken for us. And the wine, which is symbolic of a picture of his blood spilled out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we can come and we can commune, reach into the Lord as Thomas did this day. Reach into his broken body reach into his blood that is spilled. That's why there's power in communion. That's why we offer it every single Sunday here at Reality because we need to be stirred up by way of reminder when our lives bring us a crisis of faith that God is faithful, that he died for my sins, that his body was broken, his blood was spilt, but he rose from the dead. And just as Thomas reached his hand into that wound, I now reach my hand and I take hold of that body that was broken and I partake of it into myself. And I hold in my own hands that blood that was spilled. And I partake of it myself. How do we settle the crisis of faith in our lives? We press into the wounds of Jesus Christ. And don't you know that the book of Zechariah says that at his second coming, 
that we will see his wounds, that all the nation will look upon his wounds and they will mourn over the Messiah. He bears those wounds eternally that we might press into them eternally, that we might be continually reminded of the sacrifice, of the faithfulness that God foretold it and it happened. Listen to me. God foretold it and it happened. Throughout the Bible, as you read it, you will see one thing, people getting themselves into trouble and God being a faithful deliverer. You will see a second thing, God setting people up in adversity on purpose and delivering them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up before Nebuchadnezzar and had great faith. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, we will never bow down to this image. And our God is able to deliver us from your hands. But even if he doesn't, we hope he does, but if he doesn't, will never bow down. And what did God do? He did not deliver them. Nebuchadnezzar took them, heated up the furnace seven times hotter, and they were thrown directly into the furnace. And it wasn't until they went into the fire, into the furnace, into the trial, into the temptation, that there Nebuchadnezzar looked and said, didn't we throw three guys in the fire? And all the servants said, yes, three guys. And he said, but I see four in there moving around, and one has the appearance as of the Son of God. It wasn't until they were in the midst of the fire that they realized the presence of the eternal Jesus Christ was with them. And we're told that they were delivered from the fire and not a hair on their body was singed and not a piece of their clothing was burnt. The only thing that burned was the ropes with which they were bound. The only thing that was burned in the fire, in the trial, in the tribulation, in the pain, in the fear, in the lack of understanding, the only thing that was burnt away was that which had them bound in their humanity. And they came out of the trial freed from that and having seen the Son of God. Now God will purposefully set you up in trials to test your faith. The question is, what do you do in that time? Do you press into the Lord or do you despair and pull away from the Lord? Do you press into the wounds or do you freak out and flip out and bail out? Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, this will encourage our faith this morning. Verse 28, Paul writes, and we know, notice what Paul says there, we know. Paul didn't say we think, we assume, we really sort of hope. And he he didn't say I know, speaking of himself, he said we know. God is speaking to you right now. God says through a servant Paul, we know. Romans 8, 28. That God causes all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. That is a description of Christians. Those who love God and are called according to His purpose. The promise that we know is that God works all things together for good. What don't we know? A ton of things. There are a ton of things we don't know. There will be so much in this life that we are unsure of, that we are afraid of, that we are unaware of, that we just don't know. There are so many unknowns. One of the great secrets to walking in faith is to never trade the unknowns for the knowns. What don't you know? Everything. We hardly know anything. There's so much we won't know. What do we know? God will cause all things to work together for you if you are His. We know that. We can bank on that. That is why James said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance or steadfastness. 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 It means you can't be moved. It means you're immovable. It means you're planted upon the rock. It means you're solid. It means you're not waning. You're not fainting. You're not falling. You're not giving up. You're not giving in. 
How does that happen? That happens through trials. And because God wants you to be steadfast, immovable, faithful, He will give you trials in which He can show Himself faithful. So the secret for the Christian is when the trials come, now I'm talking about God-given trials, I'm not talking about the mess you made. God will deal with that too in His grace. But the Bible says, you reap what you sow, God will not be mocked. You made a mess, you've got to deal with the consequences. God will have mercy, but there's consequences. But when God brings a trial into your life, just like when He told the disciples, get in the boat and go to the other side, and He brought the storm of the year to them. When God sets you up in adversity, just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego went into the fire, He does so to cause you to be steadfast. Paul said it this way in Romans. We exult in our tribulations. We exult. We rejoice in our tribulations. Paul said for the Christian that when we get into hard times, when things don't make sense, we rejoice. We go, oh, this is great. I mean, it's miserable. I'm totally bummed. This doesn't make any sense. This is really scary. This is horrible. But this is great. Because we exult in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance brings about patience well how's it go gee whiz i can't count on you guys right now okay romans chapter five we exalt in tribulation knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of god has been poured out within our hearts through the holy spirit who has given who has been given to us Now, God wants every one of us to have hope as Christians. He wants every one of us to have proven character as Christians. He wants us to have perseverance. But if hope is at the end of the road and hope does not disappoint, what is at the beginning of the road? Well, we got to back up before hope becomes that proven character. Before that proven character, which means trusting and abiding in God, comes that perseverance, that steadfastness, that trust. Before that perseverance comes that tribulation. The beginning of the road to hope is paved with trials and tribulations. Therefore, God in His infinite mercy and wisdom and grace and love is sure to give you things in this world that don't make sense to your finite mind, that scare you, that confound you. And then he says, consider it all joy because I am working this for your perseverance, for your your steadfastness, so that you're immovable, that you have proven character and that you have hope and hope will not disappoint because Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good. Verse 29 of Romans 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Are you a Christian? God is faithful to complete the work he's begun in you that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these also he called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 32. It's absolutely beautiful. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What is God? He's a giver. What does God want to withhold from you? Nothing that is good. He gave his only begotten son. His body was broken in our place. Having given the most valuable thing the world could ever imagine, the blood of Jesus Christ, what good thing will he withhold from his children? Stupid to think that he would withhold something good. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's you and I. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Nobody. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Have you ever gone to anybody and gone, Oh, brother, my situation. You guys to pray for me. That's good. Do that. But don't forget that Jesus Christ himself is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you. So what's your problem? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, just it is written. For thy sake we are all being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So your problem was? Are you having a crisis of faith? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Who can be against us? Nobody. Christ is for us. So what do we do in the crisis of faith when we're afraid, when we're scared, when things are unknown, when it doesn't make sense? We press into the wounds. We press into the reality of the sacrifice that he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He has been a faithful deliverer to every human being throughout history whom he allowed to go into tribulations. You are not going to have the joy of being the first one that God lets down. He will not. He's absolutely faithful. But sometimes we need to press into those wounds. How do we do that? 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 2, Peter, beloved Peter, can't wait to meet him, Peter, writes in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Listen, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us, already given to you, Christian, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that you need for this life and for life beyond. For existing in this world and walking with God has already been given to you, has granted to us. His divine power, power that has authority to do anything it wants to do, has already given to you everything that you need for this life. How do we get it? Through the true knowledge of Him, that is Jesus, who called us by His own glory and excellence. We have been given everything that we need for this life. How do we appropriate it? How do we lay hold of it? How do we actualize it? How do we take advantage of it that everything has been given to us? It says here, through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. It does not say through the knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. It doesn't say that. Knowledge, just intellectual stuff. So many Christians, they agree with the gospel, they've received Jesus, and they look at the promises and they say, okay, all right, okay, okay, yeah. This is talking about something different. The Greek word here that Paul employs is epinosis. It means clear and exact experiential knowledge. Not head knowledge, life knowledge. Clear and exact knowledge. It's more intense than just knowledge. It expresses a thorough participation on the part of the subject in the object. Let me explain that to you. It expresses a thorough participation of the Christian in Christ. We have all things granted to us for life and godliness through the epinosis of Christ Jesus, the clear and exact experiential hands-on knowledge, us participating in the life and in the kingdom of God right here and now. 
That is how we appropriate, we lay hold of, we grab onto everything that is pertaining to life and to godliness by thoroughly participating in the things of God, by walking in faith, by being willing to roll up our sleeves and get dirty. You see, as Americans, we're taught to get comfortable. We're not taught to get dirty. People come from our country and get, or from different countries into our country and get dirty for us because Americans don't want to get dirty. And so they come and do the dirty work. We're taught to be comfortable and clean and happy. You'll never experience the fullness of Jesus Christ in those things, spiritually speaking. We've got to be willing to roll up our sleeves and get dirty in faith, to step out in faith, to be obedient to the call of God, to respond to what God is calling you to do, to do the work of the evangelists, to be his hands, to be his feet, to express his heart, to be his mouthpiece, to walk into trials and tribulations and say, thank you, God. I don't understand. This hurts more than anything I've ever experienced. God, this hurts so bad. And this is so terrifying. And this is such a bummer. But thank you, God, because you are faithful and you are sovereign in my life. And I have fully dedicated myself to you. And whatever comes into my life has already passed through your sovereignty. So thank you, God. Show me how you're going to work it for good. And I now commit to roll up my sleeves and walk right into the fire and trust you to deliver me in freedom, unbound and unfettered. But if we only read the promises of God and say, hooray, amen, and we don't act upon them, then we never press into the wounds of Christ Jesus. To press into the wounds means to rely upon his faithfulness. The wounds of Christ are just a picture of God's faithfulness, that he fulfilled his prophecies. And it's a picture of his love, and it's a picture that he is for you. And so pressing into the wounds is stepping out in faith, surrendering to God, giving over the reins, giving over the control, surrendering your everything, your reputation, and say, God, your will be done not mine. I'm going to dig in. I'm going to have epinosis. I'm going to reach into the wounds. Look now what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, just one page back probably. First Peter chapter 5. We'll just start in verse 6, but we're going to concentrate on verse 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, or self-controlled as it's rendered. Be on alert, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. If God tells us in his word to resist the devil, it means he can be resisted according to the authority and the victory of Jesus Christ. And James told us in chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Are you going through something? You're not going through it alone. We all go through the same things. It may look a little different. It may be this, that, thus, and so, and the other. But the same sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren who is in the world. Verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It says there that after you have suffered for a little while, then God will do these things. In other words, let me uh, interpret. God will allow you to suffer for a little while. Just like he allowed the disciples to sit in the storm all night long until the fourth watch of the night. When they got in the boat, the sun was just setting. By the time Jesus finally came walking on the water to deliver them from the storm, it was between 3 and 6 a.m. They had despaired all night long so they could get to the end of themselves so they could get to the beginning of God. God will allow storms into our lives. 
and he will let them rock the boat to refine us, to purge out of us self-reliance and pride and reliance upon other people and things and the things of this world and to fortify into us God-reliance. God will allow storms into your life not to sink your ship but to settle your souls. And so after he has lovingly allowed you to suffer a little while, Lazarus is sick, Lord, come. No, I'll wait two days till he dies. I don't want to just heal him, I want to resurrect him. You see, we're always saying to God, God, heal the situation, fix the situation. God says, no, it's not good enough. I want to make it brand new. But it's got to die. Unless a grain falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, unmerited favor, who called you to his eternal glory, will himself. He will himself come to you and perfect you, meaning to complete you, to make you what you ought to be. He will confirm you, meaning to establish and ground you securely. He will strengthen you. No trial has overcome you except for that which is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way out. He will strengthen you and not give you anything beyond that which you're able to bear. And he will establish you, which means to settle you once and for all. Thomas experienced a crisis of faith and it was not resolved until he was invited by God himself to reach into the very wounds and experience firsthand, have epinosis of the faithfulness of God. And such is our invitation. Amen? Father, we thank you for this example from Thomas. And God, I'm sorry we didn't even get to Nathaniel. But we pray now that for those of us who are like Thomas, men and women of great faith, but who sometimes experience a crisis of faith, that you will now begin to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us.